Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by LitBreaker. Go to LitBreaker.com. Do you want to advertise? Do you want to get your message out to the world? Do you want to advertise on a bunch of great culture sites all at once? Sites like the Paris Review, the Nervous Breakdown, Large Hearted Boy, Full Stop, The Believer, you name it. Go to LitBreaker.com and learn how to do that. You can advertise on the full network all at once or you can pick the sites that you want. It's very user-friendly. LitBreaker.com. LitBreaker.com. Go there. This is an advertising network. For book nerds, go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, stupid, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This has 27 listeners in the Republic of Chad. This is how you have chosen to interact with me. How's it going out there? What's happening in your neck of the woods? My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I have a great show for you. My guest is Will Chancellor. His debut novel is called A Brave Man, Seven Stories Tall. It's available now in hardcover from Harper, also available in an ebook edition, and the paperback edition is due out in July of 2015 from Harper Perennial. Very pleased to have Will on the program. He and I are going to be talking in just a second. Uh, it's been sort of a crazy day. It's been a hellish day. Uh, or maybe not a hellish day. I think hellish is an exaggeration. It's been an annoying day. Hectic slash annoying. I don't want to use words that don't accurately describe my experience. You know what I mean. Overstating things. Like Louis C.K. does a bit about this. So one of my listeners, I think, tweeted this to me. Where, you know... He, Louis C.K. is joking about uh, people talking about how they're starving when they haven't eaten in two hours. That sort of shit. So, anyway, hectic day, hectic slash annoying. Just got off of an hour-long uh, customer service call with AT&T. U-verse, because my internet service was down. That's always fun. Talking to a customer service agent uh, who like barely spoke English. That's always fun. What? I can't understand you, sir. Please, can you repeat? I'm sorry, sir. I can't understand you. <laughs> oh, my God. And, not, you know, and, and also, there's a part of me that's like, don't be a dick. Don't be that guy. The dude makes uh, 10 bucks an hour. He's trying his best. 
But I mean, he, for God's sakes, he's a liaison between company and customer. He's doing customer service. You should be able to understand him over the telephone. So, I've cooled off. I did some breathing exercises. Tried to breathe it out. Return to myself. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest is Will Chancellor. I'm just going to start the show. <laughs> I don't know what else to talk about. Everything's going well. My wife went in for an ultrasound the other day, looking good. We're almost halfway there. Getting, we're at least, you know, we're about a month away from being halfway there, I think is the, the correct math. But the baby's kicking a little bit. Shit is getting real. As my mother likes to say. <laughs> she doesn't like to say that. My guest is Will Chancellor. Uh, his novel is called A Brave Man, Seven Stories Tall. I had a good time talking with him. I hope you guys enjoy listening to me talking with him. How do you feel about that? This is Will Chancellor. I'm in New York, uh, downtown. Well, I guess kind of midtown. I'm in Union Square uh, on 17th Street, right on the park in my office um, where I tutor and looking out at all the people in the market. Um, it's a good it's, spot. It's a good spot in New York. I like Union Square. Yeah, it's a good. It's a good view. Um, it's a nice sort of. I don't know. It's a nice perspective. Um, we've got this like old school office that's like a 1940s kind of vibe to it with, um, you know, these cool star starred glass doors and, and stuff. So I don't know. And you're, and, like, you're, and you're tutoring what? Like you're tutoring college kids? Um, yeah, college and high school in pretty much everything. So I guess I, I kind of I do mostly academic work um, in math and physics and chemistry. And then I'll do like test prep stuff, but we have, there are like 50 people here and they kind of do, you know, test prep pays the bills, but then they funnel, um, most of the academic work to me. You ever do any like private stuff where you just take on like some like rich person's kid and like try to like coach them up? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of what this is. So it's, um, I, you know, I'll very, I'll rarely have like a full classroom and it's more of just like a, just 
telling a story really about whatever the content is um, and finding a way to, you know, finding a way to do that with, with organic chemistry or something. So it's, um, so it's like narrative. And then by the way, like the fact that you, you understand organic chemistry well enough to tutor people on it, like that's not usual. That's not like a normal set of circumstances for a literary person. <laughs> but yeah, I'm still working on becoming a literary person. Um, it's, I don't know. I've always, um, are you, a, are you I a guess, brain where did you get, you went to Stanford, right? So you're a good, you, you had good grades. I did, but I didn't really have great grades in college. Um, I, I had this really, stupid approach to it of, I mean, I'm, I'm middle class background and Stanford was like a big financial hurdle for my family. Where, where are you I, from? Um, Hawaii and Texas. And, uh, it was in, in Texas, San Antonio. And that's where I, you know, that's where I went to middle school and high school, but it was, it was tuition was a serious thing, you know? And my, my attitude when I got to college was, well, you know, fuck it. I'm here. I'm going to take every class they let me take. And then I'm going to like try to get a petition to take more classes. So I, I took everything that I thought I wasn't going to do outside of college. Like I knew that I would always be, you know, reading and writing, but I thought that there was no chance that I would learn, you know, anything about chemistry or physics just on my own. I, I kind of took the attitude that I was going to study stuff that, um, that I wouldn't have learned otherwise and just like treated college more like, like, a, like a library than as a pre-professional kind of thing. I mean, I, I knew that I was always going to do something, you know, I, I was pretty sure that I was going to end up doing this, but I, it took me a long but time. You, to, knew, you knew you were going to be a writer. Yeah. Okay. And going and, in. Well, I had a pretty strong feeling going in and, um, but I couldn't admit that to my family cause it was kind of like joining the circus and especially because, you know, college was, was really expensive. Um, I, I think they were, they wanted me to be a lawyer. Um, and so then I worked for the earth justice legal defense fund cause I, I was, I was really interested in environmental law and thought that I wanted to do that. Um, and when I was working there, it was pretty incredible seeing uh, seeing people's life work gutted in an afternoon by a Bush executive order. You know, somebody works on arsenic levels in water for 20 years, uh, wins some really hard won, hard fought uh, legal battles. And then, you know, some fucker just pass, passes an executive order that completely undoes all of that work. And uh. um, so environmental law is kind of a nightmare because you don't have enforcement mechanisms for a lot of it. And then when you do, it's all pretty tenuously grounded. There's not a really robust, uh, grounding for any of the, any of the laws. So the stuff that I, I found that earth justice was doing that was really cool was being done by MDs and MPHs. So, you know, I thought, okay, I'll, I can shift and, and go into go at it from that angle, from like a hard science angle. So that's you know that's why I took a lot of science courses, and that's why I know this stuff. I guess that I that I'm teaching. So wait, you were going to um, be a doctor. I was going to do an MD, MPH, yeah. But you didn't. Um, but you didn't do that. No, this fucking book just kept that from happening. I mean, seriously, I was I was uh, ready to go, and um, but I started the first draft of this book and. 
Well, and was, I was going to say, I got to interrupt because like you're talking about somebody, you know, earlier you were mentioning these people whose life work, uh, whose life's work could be like wiped out in an instant by some sort of executive order. And then I read that you wrote a 1200 page draft of this book and then just like deleted the thing and started over at page one. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, it was, uh, this, this was in 2004. I moved in, I moved to New York. I was living in Northeast Texas and, so I did postgrad work in, in physics and then started taking ancient Greek because of, of this book. And then I, I know that that sounds like really weird, but it was, it was, it was kind of obsessive just trying to figure out the character that I was writing about. So, and, and trying to figure out how serious I was about language and, and how much I thought that this was going to be, you know, my life. And there's a, there's a quote, um, I'm not really quoting myself since it's somebody since it's a quote from Johnson, but it's like every man displays half his life displaying talents he doesn't possess. And that idea of like spending half your life on things that you're not good at was always at the front of my mind. And, um, and I just wanted to, I, so I took a little bit of time after college and then, uh, was studying physics and was like, okay, can I do this? And I, I thought that, I mean, who's to say if I have any talent in, in this direction, but like, I, I was pretty sure that I wasn't talented enough to do science on, on the level that I wanted to do it. Um, do you think you're put on this earth to do a certain kind of work? I think you've got to trust your intuition, you know, fully. And if you're, if your intuition is putting you, pointing you in one direction, you know, I, I just don't think I have anything else. That's the only thing that I've that I can possibly trust. And what if it What if it sends you into poverty? Well, I mean, uh, that's the present circumstance, right? <laughs> I mean, right. It's uh, I, well, I guess you published a book back when writers were like taking yachts around the Mediterranean in like the, <laughs> the halcyon days of two thousand and six, and like no, yeah, right. I didn't experience that, but I mean, I just, I mean, I ask as much on my own behalf as I do, to, you know, directly of you because. You know, it's like this, it can feel like a calling and people can speak of it in those terms. And then sometimes that really resonates with me. And then other times I'll sit there and ask myself, like, am I being precious? Am I fooling myself? Uh, well, yeah, this... I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of preciousness to it. It's just like, I, I think the simplest way that I've ever heard it is do absolutely anything else if you can. <laughs> and like, if you, if you just can't do any, if it just keeps like pulling at you, then then you got to do it. Well, know? and also like the universe has a way sometimes too, it seems. And again, here I go getting precious and like metaphysical. <laughs> but, like, but sometimes it feels like I, I can sometimes feel like I'm being like actively blocked from any other path. It's like, you know, I've, I've tried to do other things and I, I guess that's kind of what you're saying, but like mm -hmm. you try to do other things and it's like, yeah, yeah, just, I keep kind of winding up back here, staring at this flashing cursor. Like it just keeps happening. Yeah. My, my uncle would always say that it was process of elimination, that that's like what the process of learning and just trying to figure out what you want to do is. And I think there's that element of just, you know, taking a few steps in one direction, seeing if it works. But I, to me, the better, the better advice is just like, trust, trust your intuition fully and just, you know, because if you, if you don't have that, what, what is there, you know, why, why are you, I don't know. Now I'm getting mystical and precious. But. <laughs> it's, right. it's hard, it's hard <laughs> not, to talk not, about. But you yeah. worked on this. You worked on this book for like a decade. Yeah, and sorry to meander too much there, but um, yeah. And then I did. I was doing stuff, and I was doing postgrad work in Austin, um, not in writing, but I was I was working on this book. And then I moved to Pittsburgh, Texas. My grandma had a house 
that no one had lived in for like seven years um, in this town. And so, you know, but we still had it. And so it was, it was in disrepair, but it was kind of like awesomely in disrepair the same way that um, I'm just, a, I'm a big fan of things that are crumbling and just the, Why? like, I don't know. I think it's, it's just more honest, you know, because we're all fucking falling apart all the time. Right. It's, it's, it's like, comforting. it's like, right. I feel, I feel like there's a lot of like attempts to conceal that, at least in like Western culture or whatever. Like, it's like, we don't want to act like we're aging. We don't want to look like we're aging. We yeah. don't, don't want to dress like we're aging. We don't want to smell like we're aging. None of that stuff. Like so many people are trying to actively conceal it. And then every once in a while you see somebody who's just like comfortably old and it's like a relief. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like the New York subway system is comfortably old. I used to give it shit for like, you know, compared to other subway systems in the world that have paintings and, you know, are gilded. I And it's like, how how does this possible? But I actually love the fact that you can see, you know, walls falling apart. You can, and, you can smell urine from 1984. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice bouquet that, that was a fine year. Um, <laughs> so, but, so you're living in Pittsburgh, Texas, you move into like this, what, like this, like a abandoned home essentially. Yeah. I mean, we had, so the fam, like my, my mom would go up there, uh, like twice a year and, and just make sure that things weren't like totally crazy but there so the first day that i was there this is i had completely blocked this memory out so i get there and for some and i drive up it was my family lives in houston now um and so i drive from houston up to pittsburgh texas and i i hadn't eaten like all day and so uh so I boil, I'm like, I check the gas, get the stove going and I'm oh, boiling God. water. I'm, I'm already getting a bad feeling. <laughs> I'm, I'm boiling water and I hear like a rustle behind me uh. and, uh, and I turn around and there's a giant fucking snake, a giant black snake on the counter. Um, and, <laughs> and so I, I, uh, I grab a kitchen knife. And just, just in one motion, just go whack and and cut the snake in two. No and way. The knife is embedded in the countertop, and I just left it there. I left the knife. I left the. I left this the the water boiling and just like went ah, and like freaked out, and then uh, left the the knife embedded in the counter the whole time, even after I cleaned up the the mess but what was the snake what was it what kind of snake was it it was a big fucking black snake i don't know it was probably like a there's a there is uh <laughs> pilgrim's pride chicken is the sole employer of, of pittsburgh texas and uh there's a big chicken feed thing uh near this house and so there you know there are a bunch of there there were always a bunch of snakes that would uh, that would be around there so and you're but it sounds like your family like because i mean if you're going to this length to to work on your writing like it's and your parents are you know, it sounds like they were on board or at least tentatively they're like okay i've got the most supportive parents in the world i mean like they just would have been really comfortable if i would have had some security you know especially like after you drop fucking like six figures on a college education it's nice to be able to say like okay well you, you have some career earning trajectory right and instead you know i i was especially the kind of, it's not like I had a really good plan and I was like, 
oh yeah, I've been publishing short stories the whole time. And, um, and this is just an extension of one of the stories and it should take me about six months and I've already had contact from agents or it was just like, nope, going to this house and just going to bang on a typewriter for See, a year. It's make, this is making me think there should be like a fund for people like us. There should be like, like save yeah. the children or like UNICEF. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you got, I guess you've always got to say like how important is anything that we're, that we're doing. And it's like, but I think it is a big deal to be able to write, um, you know, to be able to write, to have some time before you're established enough to justify getting grants to get a grant. Um, but there, it's it, also, it's also like the case where like people can't stop. I think, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, yeah. it's not like, it almost feels like there's not a choice or something. I guess there is, but it can seem like there's not. And if there's not, then it's the same thing as having a disease, in which case <laughs> there should, there should be a fund. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there should definitely be, I, I, on a serious level, I think that there should be a fund for, people of different backgrounds because there there's a built-in trust fund kind of culture that happens to where like if you have inheritance or something you can you can do that you can just be like okay cool i'm gonna i just graduated college i'm gonna go um write a book for two years and and i think that socioeconomically that happens to where you you know you get a de facto grant that just the way that that you know the way that our country is structured and i think that you get a disproportionate amount of writing of young writing that, that comes out of that. And I think it would be nice if, if there was just this, like, let's just, can we call it like the fuck it grant? <laughs> it's, like, it's just something that's like, all right, you know, pick up, go to the middle of nowhere. Fuck it. You got to write this book. And then just, yeah, there's know. like, there's huge tracts of land in like the Dakotas or something. They should just like, it should be like yeah. a reservation, you know, like yeah. put us on there. Let us all uh, just have like a little I, box to live in. You know, my friends and I have this uh, this idea, this long running idea that we're going to build an old west town. Um, we're just going to get like a, a little track of land upstate and have a, a one lane dirt road, um, like old, like you know, just falling apart, clabbered. How is that? How you say that? Clabbered, clapboard. I never know how to yeah, say that. Clapboard. Yeah, and it's like an intentional community. Like, why don't we kickstart this? Let's do this. There, there's got to be. It. There should be a groundswell of support for such a thing. Yeah, I mean, the list of Kickstarter projects you, <laughs> I think you and I could come up with in, in the next 30 minutes. That that might be. I, last night I was like, why isn't there a fucking statue of Lou Reed anywhere? Like, I want my, and I was like, Kickstarter, bring it. Let's it'll, get a it'll happen. It'll happen. <laughs> so so yeah. when you went to Stanford, I mean, you go from being a middle class kid. Like, what did your, what did your folks do? You, you're, Hawaii um, and Texas, I'm thinking military, but it could be wrong. Golf. <laughs> my, you know, so my dad, I mean, we're, we're like whatever upper middle class. But when you look at like the real, the real way that things break down in this country, there's like, you know, there's a there, golf. They, yeah, there, well, yeah. And we were definitely, you know, my dad was a golf pro, um, and worked at country clubs and, you know, there's, there was, it was kind of in my face growing up that like, Oh, you can hang out at the club, but you're not like a member of right, the club. Right, you know? right. And, uh, and so, I don't know. My yeah, my dad was on the PGA tour before I was born, and then when oh, they shit. had me, yeah, he was he was legit. Uh, is he, legit. Did he, ever, did he ever like what? Did he ever win a tournament, or was he just kind of like on the tour and like hacking away? Um, yeah, he. You know, back then the tour was it was weird. They they traveled by car, so they would drive from event to event. And if you weren't, if you were like like my dad is consi- he's he was always 
really, really good, but never really great. You know, like he would never shoot a 60, he, but he would always shoot like a 68 or something. Well, so he would to, always, let's get clear. Just to be on the PGA Tour, you have to be a really fucking good golfer. Right, exactly. He was, I mean, he played at UT um, with Ben Crenshaw and Tom Kite and was the, he was the second best player of those three in college. And then he went, he went on the tour. Um, but, you know, he, he made something like 20,000 a year. Um, Sounds like being a writer. Then. Yeah. Is that, <laughs> it, you know, these guys, it was before they got sponsorship. It was tennis was kind of like the rich business sport back then. And um, golf, golf wasn't, it wasn't until the eighties, you know, after he had quit that they started making a lot of money. Do you play golf? Um, I haven't played in five years, but I was, I played a lot in high school. Um, and was thinking about playing in college, but not at, not at Stanford. I mean, I've played, yeah, literally like five years ago, but I used to be, I used to be a scratch golfer when I was younger. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so it's a, I was going to, cause I was going to ask you, know, you talk about privilege and you talk about kind of, uh, like, uh, built in trust funds and whatnot. And I was thinking like, oh, you go from being a middle-class kid in Texas to Stanford. You must've like come up against privilege in a pretty serious way. There have to be a lot of privileged kids there, but it sounds like you sort of grew up right there in the midst of privilege and like have like deep experience interacting with people. I mean, you, yeah. if you're at a country club, like that's, that's where that's like ground zero. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, uh, you know, and it's funny, like my high school had, I think there were like 1200 people in my, in my freshman class and like 600 people in my graduating class. So it was, it was, uh, like a big, a huge attrition rate. As soon as anybody, I think it was, at 16, you could um, drop out of high school and enter. And then at 15, I think if you had a vocational program, you could drop out of, of high school. So um, there were a bunch of people that just had to start earning money. And so they, you know, so they dropped out. But like, I don't know. I mean, I'm still like, whatever. It, it's still, it's not like, I don't even know what middle class means anymore i mean i think there's just like upper class and then everybody else but right um and a lot of my job you know my my job now is to for the most part like tutoring people from that the upper class background and um but you're like their academic like caddy or something well it's weird because like the whole job is about trying to inspire people to do cool stuff um so even if i'm tutoring somebody in like math like the like, okay, well, you know, don't talk about it, be about it, like do something. If you're really, you know, if you have an aptitude for this, do something with it. Don't become another fucking douchebag on wall street. Right. And, um, yeah, like so there's, that, there's not enough. There's not enough because it really is like, I mean, I, I forget what the exact numbers are, but the statistics of like Ivy league graduates who go on to work in finance, like yeah. it's just this massive, just like funnel of uh, brain talent that goes directly into, wall street and yeah. like you know i don't i mean i get it that they're i mean i don't think the stock i mean i don't know i don't want to sound too like uh black and white like wall street should be abolished i don't know enough to know if that's the case but i think that like you know there's clearly like a great amount of toxicity in that professional realm and there's a lot of damage that's been done and it's like uh i think that maybe more energy needs to be put into at the academic level, making students think about the consequences of their work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as 
as uh, somebody whose first lens is is environmentalism, the I, I'm fundamentally anti-growth. Which, if you say now is you know, it means that you're that you're just a, an anarchist or something. But it's funny you had Jimmy Carter in his inauguration speech saying like, well, we need to reconsider whether growth is actually good and whether the economy should get bigger or whether we should think about not fucking up the world. And like, it's to me, I don't know. It's, I think he's an underrated, uh, I think he's an underrated, uh, president. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, think I honestly do. He's sort of like a, I mean, never Bush stole his whole, like Bush stole his whole MO of like, I'm a, I'm just a guy from the country. <laughs> and, um, yeah. But yeah, but he, he never dropped a bomb. That, I mean, that alone for me, it's like mm-hmm. if he, he's like the only president in my lifetime who didn't like <laughs> launch some sort of military adventure and start bombing people. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I'm definitely going to steal that. That's so cool. Like just, you know, don't drop a fucking bomb and yeah. you make my list of best presidents right. ever. <laughs> just, try, let's just, let's just try that. I mean, like, just yeah. give that one a shot, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know. Well, he put solar panels on the White House, too. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Because he's a communist. um so okay so you go uh you know to pittsburgh you're working on this book it begins an odyssey this book for you a decade a decade because i mean i know it takes years to write a book oftentimes but a decade is at the long end i think of of uh incubation and it's it it requires a certain kind of stamina like did you ever get super dark and depressed you don't seem like you have that in you but is this this just is this this all just a ruse are you secretly well there's if you were sitting across from me you might change your mind Um, but i don't know i like it was uh so the book was i actually i thought so i wrote this draft in in this house in, in pittsburgh texas and then i moved to the city and I thought that it was going to be like six months. <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, well, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to put this into the computer and then I'll just, you know, find an email for whoever the biggest agent is and then just hit send and then I'm done. <laughs> and it's like, and, uh, you know, I actually, I realized when I started, uh, I, I had written it on a typewriter to just go like full romantic ridiculous thing. so i had a uh, i had a typewriter face i did go through it was mine was short-lived i couldn't i was it was just too impractical for me like with the deleting and the whiting out and shit but i i have to join you in that miserable club <laughs> yeah it, you just end up with white out all over your face and you're like how did what happened to me um but i hate myself I, yeah it's so funny how i mean how fucking precious everything at the onset of this whole, you know, story was. Um, and just how impractical everything that, I don't know why I felt like I needed to, to go about it that way. But, um, it's so like, I, it's like an homage or something, or it's like, there's something about, uh, maybe it's like that. It's always been like a part of me that wanted to live in a, in the past. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. Better than the present. I, it's, I, it's easy. Know. It's easy to romanticize it. But like, I I always fantasize like the mid nineteenth century as like this period of great learning and you know the frontier and stuff. But like, people <laughs> um, people were in outhouses and they were like dying of tuberculosis and it was miserable. Right. But they had that one nice suit. They would yeah. Wear. <laughs> and they're wearing it in like the summer heat and there's no air conditioning. It's disgusting. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny you said that. I'm actually looking at a picture of of Herman Broke in this this book right now. Um, it's sitting right across from me. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. So I moved here and, and then when I was looking at what I wrote in Pittsburgh, uh, it was, it was really bad. And so wait, what, what prompted the move to New York? Was it just like, I got to go where the action is. I've, I've been in 
Pittsburgh, Texas for too long. Yeah, I was done. I was like, I was like, well, I guess, you know, New York's where you go to publish a book. So, um, what were, you, what were you doing in Pittsburgh, Texas besides writing? Did you go out? Zero. I had like three inner, I had three interactions with people and I would go to the grocery store. Like, I don't know if you've ever done this, but like you just go to the grocery store at night cause you don't want to see anybody during the day. And so I would go once, uh, you know, I'd go to the grocery store every couple of months and buy cases of, of mac and cheese and, and, uh, Newman's Saccharini sauce. For some reason they had like that by the caseload and it was pretty cheap and then spaghetti and that would, and you know, I would live off of that. Um, and yeah, I was, I was and, just, and how long were you there for six months? It was closer to nine months, I think. And you, but, were you going insane? Um, I don't know. Did you get yeah. sad? Did you I mean were you like calling your parents like help me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've actually never been happier in my life. Than that. Um, and, yeah. and that's not with like through rose colored glasses with the benefit of hindsight. No, I mean it was just like I mean you know you've been through this like that that ecstasy that you feel when things just start to crystallize and and come together, and. You know, it was. It's been a while, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that that wasn't a one. It might be like that first time that you meditate, and it's like the best <laughs> feeling ever. And you're yeah, like, like oh, the, the first time you ever do like MDMA. I don't know if you've ever done exactly, that. Yeah. You're like a genius, yeah. and then every subsequent time, you're like, I feel awful. It's <laughs> just this is fleeting. Like, the feelings oh, going away. I know the feelings oh, going oh, away. Pain awaits me. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I don't know. So that that ecstasy, like kind of blinded me and I, I moved here and I was subleasing a place in the East village. I found this great place, but it was only for like two months. And then, uh, the woman that I was subleasing from, I was like, well, you know, where should I go now? <laughs> She's like, um, the Chelsea hotel, I think takes people on. And so then I, I went over to the Chelsea and met Stanley Bard and, uh, he, it's really funny. He's got this this office or he had this office right off the, the front door and he has these bookcases, but they're just filled with like um, drawings and manuscripts and things like that. And he was like, well, you know, if you're serious about a writer, I'm going to need to, to see some of your, see some of your writing. And so I gave him this, I, I gave him the original, the original first two or three chapters of, of this book and there are only seven chapters, but I had already transcribed it into the typewriter and I, I gave it to him and it's like, now I guess it's with his whole, uh, you know, Raiders of the lost Ark, uh, collection of, of, <laughs> of just random scribbling. So who is this guy? He's like the, the owner of the hotel, the manager. Yeah. And he, and he was like, you know, it's funny. He was a huge supporter. So rent there was $800 a month and I could pay it on my credit card. And so I lived there for a couple of years and just like kind of racked up credit card debt. I started teaching at, at Stuyvesant. I started coaching the, the debate team at Stuyvesant high school. Okay. And, um, but that's not like, you know, it's not a huge, uh, breadwinning job. So, uh, Wait, you mean also... it's not raining money and debate prep. <laughs> Yeah, the, the debate. Well, they just haven't gotten their corporate sponsorships yet. Once they do, once that starts coming in, it's going to be all gravy. But um, I don't know. I love high school debate. Was like my so that school that I went to. It was whatever. But the uh, there was there were some really good teachers. But the debate program was amazing, and and that was my that was my thing. So in in high school, I would go 
on debate tournaments every weekend and we would, you know, travel around the country and just get the hell out of, <laughs> of San Antonio. Um, but, uh, are you a good debate? You're a good debater. I was, I was, um, you ever think about going into politics? <laughs> I, I, I think my politics are pretty far out there and my rap sheet is, is such that I, I think I would last about a day. What do, you, um, what do you mean? Like, what have you, I mean, just because you've done drugs or something or is it, have you done, have you been arrested? Um, yes, <laughs> I'm not, I guess I won't specify which <laughs> ones, but, um, yeah, I don't know. There's just, I think it's kind of a shame that there's, I, it, there's all, uh, I'm, well, we're I'm getting pretty, over that though. We're getting over that. I feel like the drugs thing, I mean, Obama did cocaine. Everyone just yawned. Like who gives a shit? Like, I mean, yeah. I don't necessarily want my president like, like doing crystal meth in, in office. Um, yeah. but like and, a little weed, fine. Yeah. I don't know. And I haven't been like, I was, I was arrested for, um, this is a, a funny story. Um, so I was 17 years old and going, uh, I was on spring break in Texas. So that means that you're going to South Padre Island. And that really means that you're going into Mexico, but you're staying in South Padre Island. So, um, <laughs> I'm in, I'm in Mexico and it's like one in the morning or something. And I'm there with all my friends and there's this guy who's, um, he was four years older than me. So he was in college at, at UT at this point. And, I run into into him at this bar in Mexico, and I'm like, "Well, I kind of want to go back. This is kind of lame." And I was I was actually really nervous that that I was going to get arrested in Mexico because sketchy shit was happening all around me. And uh, like what? And was like, like what? People just drug deals and stuff, or there was like, yeah, there were like my friends were were buying drugs, and I I was just I just got a really bad intuition about it, and I was like, I want to get you know I want to go back you know, across to the, to the U S side. And, and my friend was like, Oh yeah, sure. I'm going back right now. And, and there's a, there's a party over there. So I get in his car and we, we clear the border, get into, into the U S and we're on the, the interstate and he starts just flooring it like going one ten, you know? And I'm, and I'm like, dude, you've got to slow the fuck. Who is and, was he? Was he intoxicated? Well, he was driving fine and then he slows down to about, you know, 60 and hits a median, just like swerves and hits this, hits this median. And, uh, as soon as he swerved instantly, like six cop cars were following us the whole time from when he was driving at like 110. Te- and Texas cops too. Yeah. It's like a, it's like and, a, I feel like it's more intense breed. Yeah, and they swarm right, and they come to the car with guns drawn. And uh, please, please tell me you put drugs in your ass, did you? <laughs> so, so they come to, they come to the door, grab him. They're like, you know, on the ground now. Put you know a boot in the back of his head, and they still got their guns drawn as they're as they're cuffing him. And <laughs> meanwhile, I'm sitting in the front seat, like I've just got my seatbelt buckled in, and I'm like, I, you know, my name is Paul, and this is between y'all. I'm just I'm just sitting there, hoping this whole thing goes away. And did you, uh, wait, did you really say that, or is that like a figure of speech? I it, I think it's a figure of speech. Okay. I feel like it's like a Quentin Tarantino thing oh, from, okay. from right. somewhere. Yeah, but, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm sitting in the front seat and, and then they throw him against the car, put him in the back of, of one of the, one of the cars and, and no, 
was a lick to me. And it's almost like they forgot about me. And then, you know, and then five minutes later, this cop comes to my door, opens my, you know, opens the passenger door. I've still got my seatbelt on just like, you know, looking, looking ahead of me, everything's fine. And, uh, <laughs> and he grabs me um, and pulls me out of the car and I've still got my seatbelt on. So like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't actually come out of the car. I was kind of like, you know, I was caught. And so it ended up kind of pulling him. And then he comes and like, he undoes the seatbelt buckle, throws me on the ground, cuffs me. And, and I'm what, like, what? what, like what you're the passenger, dude, you, what are you guilty of? Well, so this is the great thing, right? Um, I, I'm, I ask him this question and he's like, you're, you know, you're, you're under arrest for public intoxication and resisting arrest. And he's like, if you say another word, then I'm going to make sure that I'm personally at the trial and you're not going to leave, you know, you're not going to leave jail for the next two weeks. And, uh, and so the reasoning was that, that, uh, if you let a drunk driver drive, then you have to be intoxicated. So never mind the fact that I was in private, you know, in a car and were you, were you, of, were you of age at the time? No, I was 17. Oh, God. And, yeah. and I had just gotten into Stanford, and I was so nervous that <laughs> this was, like, you know, going to all get taken away. And, oh, my God. Uh, and so then I had to spend – I spent three days in in the clank. <laughs> what did your and, parents do? Did they know? Uh, they didn't find out until later. <laughs> they, three days. Three <laughs> they actually didn't find out until now. So, hi, Mom. Oh, yeah. Good, good. <laughs> Is this seriously uh, it? This is this is you like officially coming out to your parents that you spent three days in jail? Um, <laughs> no, they they know. Um, they found out. I think they. I think I told them later that year. They were they were upset about something. And that's intense, though. Jail. I mean, anywhere. I mean, jail. Period. Just three yeah, day, three days. Oh, must, it's a long time. God. So I get you know. So I met the booking, and there are these there's metal stairs that go down to the cells and. Uh, you know, I have to take my shoes off and socks off and and uh, belt off and all my stuff. And they put it in this little bin. And then the guard just kind of walks me down to a cell, opens it, you know, real fucking hard ass, huge neck kind of guard opens, opens a cell and throws me in. And there are like eight other guys. Oh, my and God. Is there a toilet in there? There's one. Yeah. And did you, did you take a dump the whole time you were there? <laughs> well, it's it, I almost did in my pants <laughs> because <laughs> the whole time that that I'm that the guards walking me down, these guys in the cell are like, oh, yeah, fresh piece of ass. Put them in here. And they just start, you know, and they're banging on the on the doors of the cell and just like, you know, uh, and so I get thrown in there and then suddenly it all goes quiet and they start surrounding me. And, uh, one of them, this huge guy just walks closer and just, you know, he's just eyeing me and just like gets in, you know, gets in my face. And then I, you know, I'm, I'm at this point almost shitting myself. And then he, and he says, nah, dude, we're just fucking with you. <laughs> and then, you know, an hour past some other drunk asshole gets thrown in, in the cell and I do the same thing with him. And it was like, um, that's actually but, kind of, that's like, I feel like that's something out of like a, uh, Judd Apatow movie or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you didn't get your ass kicked or like you didn't get like raped in this prison cell. Yeah. Well. You must've been scared shitless though. I mean, I have a buddy who was a, uh, who is a germaphobe, like bona fide. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he got arrested and it was like, he got arrested on like a, 
was like a Thursday night, and then like couldn't get to court until Monday. So he had to, he wound up having to spend like the entire weekend in a in a cell with four other guys, and like you know a, like there's no walls; it's just a toilet. Everyone's just yeah. using it. like you're just people are just pooping like right in front of you. Oh yeah, and, it's, uh, the germs and it's, and he was like, <laughs> like I saw him like I saw him the night that he got arrested. Okay, and didn't know that he got arrested until Monday when he called me after he had been released from court. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw him. It was his birthday, of all things. I saw him at his birthday party at a, ho- at a bar at a hotel. And then I went and met up with him on Monday. He had lost. I, it looked like he had lost 25 pounds. <laughs> it looked like he had just been. Honestly, it looked like concentration camp thin. Oh. I mean, I don't mean to make light. But you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. he, he looked horrible. He looked like yeah. haunted and pale and emaciated. <laughs> And it was like, I mean, I guess if you're a germaphobe, that kind of sort of doubles the trauma of being incarcerated because you don't have any control, you know, over your scenario. But it's nothing. Yeah. And, you, you know, his soul is now in a jar somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, there was this one sweet. They, the thing that's fucking nuts is they don't let you they don't actually let you make a phone call. <laughs> like I was, you know, I pulled that line. I was like, well, I need to make a phone. And they just start laughing at me. Oh. And uh you know, 48 hours pass and then, um, and then we get brought in front of, you know, the, every, this, the whole cell kind of files out to go to this, this judge. And, and then we go back in the cell and then we come back like the next day and there wasn't a phone call to, to anybody the whole time. And it, it was funny though. There's this one, there's this one like saint of the South Padre jail who just brings people these homemade sandwiches. So like that was the only Thing that we had you know like she would God, come by bless those kinds of people who are yeah. these people that do this kind of stuff that's, that's yeah. the best okay she would just bring like you know she just every day she'd come down and bring sandwiches it was really bizarre i mean yeah, i think it was some, some sort of like hardcore christian who's like trying to do god's work yeah i mean i think that was that was <laughs> um that was I what mean, i just cut out I, I mean i think that i think i had to i think that was the what i had to pay for that um was I? I think that she did go into something, and I might have made a promise to repeat it. You know, uh, that, wait, just give me the sandwich, lady. Whatever, I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah. say. I'll say whatever you want. No, she was like, actually, there will be this time in 2015 when you have to say on a podcast that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, <laughs> and you know. And so here it is. Now the <laughs> debts are all square. Those sandwiches uh, are, you know. Yeah. <laughs> are now paid for. Oh my but, God. So your parents, but you're just out of commun- you're incommunicado with friends and family during this 72 hour stretch. Yeah. You know, one of my, so then, um, I, one of my, one of my friends gets, <laughs> gets thrown in jail too. And, um, so he gets, he gets thrown in that same night. Um, and he somehow got to call our friends he, first of all, he got his own cell. They gave him, you know, he went to high school with me. He was a, he was on the the trip with me. They gave him his own cell, and he was out of there in like six hours. And they like, I don't know, he like had one of his friends bail him out. And uh, but I don't know. I just had to. I wasn't saying the. I guess I wasn't speaking the right language. But. What the fuck? You know, it's interesting too because I just had this debate. Yeah, <laughs> I had this debate yesterday with a friend. About, this is uh, a pretty specific debate to be having. No, no, just about, I mean, about about cops, like about uh, the, the goodness or badness of cops. It's easy to hate on cops, you know, like mm-hmm. everyone's always like, fuck the cops and the cops are, you know, killing people and abusing people and 
there's a lot of bad cop uh there's a lot of bad feelings towards cops out there and like you know not all of it is unwarranted but like i'm sort of like a devil's advocate and i see things as gray and i was like oh you know um is that a phone ringing yeah sorry work work phone oh that's right uh, but- so i was like thinking to myself you know like uh, you know, cops, they're, they're bad until you need one. You know, it's easy, right. to, it's easy to, it's easy to bag on cops until like you're in trouble and you call 911 and then they show up and save your ass and you're like, Oh, thank God for cops. But, um, you know, then, then like I hear stories like this and, uh, you know, there was this, uh, this video that went viral yesterday in, uh, from Los Angeles of these cops shooting this, uh, homeless guy. And I don't know if you saw that, but it's like, like, wow. you know, it's like, what is it? Like, I mean, I, it, they're not all bad, but I mean, I feel like yeah. a lot of them um, are sort of temperamentally predisposed towards aggression and like, you know, like having the power. And then maybe the stress of the job, which is legitimate, triggers bad behavior in them because they're not equipped to handle it in a more uh, human way. Well, there's way. an interesting – I mean I, I think that there's – I think it ultimately goes to the fact that the, the welfare system is is really broken. I mean like the idea of ending welfare – in effect, you know, what happened was this, the same population that was formerly on welfare now becomes the object of this criminalization. Because, like, if you don't have a, a welfare state, if, you, if the government isn't providing you with some sort of support, then the only thing that they can do to assert their presence is to be fucking armed cops on the street. And so suddenly you, know, you see incarceration of the same people that were – formerly, you know, had a social safety net. So it's, I think that, I think it's like more structural. I mean, like the cops that I know, I, I box with a lot of cops and firefighters and, Wait, you, box? you know, yeah, Dude, you're um, very literary. You type on a typewriter, you box, you live at the Chelsea hotel. <laughs> well, there's anxiety of all this shit, right? So it's like, you're falling into these stereotypes and it's, right. but it's like, central, you know, it's like central casting. Yeah. But, I know. But, and you're, it's but, like, you're, but you're also a scratch golfer, which like cuts against the grain a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I think it, I probably, I just started doing it because they, one of my, one of my friends started boxing and got me to go down there. It's, it's weird talking about any of this stuff because it's all really precious and, and you've got to have some perspective on what an asshole you sound like. Yeah, but a, you got an, uh, you got any, you got anger. I mean, it's like boxing help you get anger out. Um, I don't know if it helps me get anger out as much as it, it's just, um, I don't know. I just feel a little bit more grounded the whole time. But like the you know, the cops and it's nice to interact with different people, you know? Yeah. Like in in my in my day-to-day life, I interact mostly with like, you know, one type of of person and it's nice to like that's one thing that's really great about about boxing is just like being able to hang out with a lot of different people. Um yeah. and I don't know. I think it's but it's, it's good really, exercise. It's good exercise. Yeah, it's good exercise, and good. You know, you can't be. You know how you get that like hangover that lasts for days, and you just feel like your balance is off for like a week. Yeah, <laughs> well, which is like any hangover for me at my age. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm 36, and it, it's. But you can't have that hangover and box. So like when I'm boxing, it's not. You've got to maintain at least some semblance of balance the whole time. So, so wait, so does this mean like the boxing gets rid of the hangover or just the knowing that you're going to box prevents you from doing what would give you a hangover? Yeah, it's a deterrent. So okay, like, yeah. you you know, it's uh, – and You should have a pe- kid. Having, having a kid is a great deterrent too. It's like, oh, I'm Well, gonna- yeah, I do. I have a, a four-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Oh, you do? Um, well, there you go. 
and <laughs> changing changing shitty diapers at four thirty in the morning sort of like puts the <laughs> puts a damper on drinking too much. Yeah, it's totally. I mean, it's it's funny because like half. Uh, I don't know. She's she's with me Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and so like half my week is really, um, you know, is I'm asleep at like eight thirty, and I'm just like doing nothing but like reading and and. I don't know. Being so much more responsible. So wait, you're, uh, you you have her. So you're divorced. Do you have her like a few days a week? Yeah, I'm I'm uh, divorced. She's with me. Uh, we have joint custody. She's with me Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, so uh, I want to talk. Like I was going to finish like about your. And I want to get back to like relationship stuff. Like not in a specific way, but I do think that like the writing life. Um, is a lot to ask of any partner. I think about this in the context of my wife a lot. You know. Like, mm-hmm. Um, but before we get there, I want to ask you about like politics because, uh, broadly speaking, you know, a guy from Texas, uh, you know, it's your, your politics, you really go against the grain of what people normally think of. Though I guess Texas is politics. Uh, My politics are like sophomoric Austin, you know, like it's my, they're very much like Austin politics and it's not like none of these things are really like worked out that well in my, in my head. I mean, I used to be very, very political hard anti-capitalist now i'm you know a hypocrite and don't really have any systems that are that are worked out but like i don't know I, are you, are you I, reacting against like family are you reacting against texas like you know like or like what is it do you have any idea of why you feel the way you feel was there some book or something that like set you on your course or is it just like kind of more of an intuitive holistic understanding um i was really into i mean a high school debate turns you like I was arguing about, you know, I was arguing ecofeminism at 14 to like big crowds of people. So like I was always really switched on to, um, ecofeminism specifically is like the one movement that I was really drawn to the way that they think about the world. And which which is, which is how, um, holistically and seeing at it's, you know, getting beyond the anthropocentrism and saying like, okay, wilderness should exist just as wilderness. And like, we should move away from, from the idea that it has to serve, you know, then also like a patriarchal interest and instead just appreciate like, you know, holism. And to me, growth, economic growth is, is at odds with that way of viewing the world. So I think it came, you know, it came mainly from, from the deep ecology and ecofem literature. Um, that was the stuff that, that was the stuff that I was the most into, uh, early on. That's a more, that's a more legitimate grounding for political belief than like 99% of people. <laughs> most of the people are just like, I don't know, you know, like if someone told me or my parents said, or, you know, and I always... I don't know. I, yeah, I sort of. I, mean, I sort of bristle at the ease with which people land at their convictions sometimes. <laughs> I think, it, yeah, it's uh, it's hard, right? Because you get to this point where, it, it, to me, it's it seems like that is definitely a true thing. It does seem like growth is bad. Like I, I think that that is a true statement, um, but I also realize that it's impossible for us to ever move away from from the capitalist growth, good mentality. And I mean, it's like, all right, well, what do I do with my life? You know, like, am I going to keep feeling miserable about the the fact that there's this huge structural problem that I can't affect at all? Or, you know, am I going to do something creatively and just 
like try to pretend like everything's okay. And, um, I don't know who knows. I, I don't think I'm ever really, I, I just think I'm too hypocritical to be a real activist. You know, I think when I was in my twenties, I could still, I had the luxury of like being able to take a vow of poverty. And like, once you have a kid and you live in the city and you've got like child support, you can't take a vow of poverty anymore. Right. And it's like, you can't be, it, it, you have to make compromises that, that you wouldn't otherwise make. And it's, I, I haven't found a way to really balance like activism with compromise. It's, it's fucking hard. Like doing business in a way that's ecologically sound is really hard, which is why people don't do it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, it's hard enough for me, even in the micro world, not to buy a book off of Amazon. Or right. Something, right. You know? but, and, like, but you know, the thing is, is that like, I say that it's hard and I want to make sure, I want to make sure that I'm careful to say that like, but you should do it anyway. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like you have yeah. to, so, I mean, you can't be perfect, but you have to work toward that ideal. Otherwise what? Like we're just all surrendering cynically and saying like, fuck it, you know, let's grab as much money while we can and deplete all the resources and leave our children just a fucking shit pile to live in. Like we can't approach it that way. So, you know, but like yeah. if, if you're like, uh, there's a book by the guy who's like the CEO of Patagonia. Uh -huh. um, which I'm blanking yeah. on the name of, but it's like a really, like he's like that company. He's is a like, French guy, right? Yeah. He's, and it's yeah. like, he's like, they're exemplary in terms of how they treat their employees and how they make their stuff and how it affects the environment. And like, he sort of takes you through his decision-making process, which is like brilliant, but also like really grueling. Mm -hmm. Uh, and like the work is hard and there's lots of, you know, it's just difficult. It's a difficult way to do business, but the rewards are great. And he also gets to go to sleep at night knowing that he's like done his best, which is, uh, which is awesome. But, yeah. you know, it's that sort of thing. And then, you know, you get into like what you were talking about with regard to trying to balance one's ideals and one's, you know, artistic interests against the, um, you know, the responsibilities of family. And like, you know, I'm up against that. I think anybody who has kids and is interested in writing is up against that to one degree or another, uh, mm -hmm. unle unless they're independently wealthy or their spouse has some sort of insane job or whatever. Um, but I'm curious to know, like, do, do you, like, do you ever think to yourself, like, ah, I, I shouldn't be doing this or has writing in the past ever gotten in the way of a relationship? You know what I'm saying? Have you ever been like, ah, oh, you know, like my devotion yeah. to this, my commitment to this actually, um, sort of fuck things up for me relationship wise. Um, yes, I think I might have to start paying you for like a therapy session on this. <laughs> well, no, but it's, I think it's relatable. It's relatable. You know, people out there who, who do this, like, you know, it's not, it might not so, be like fun to think about for everybody, but it's, it's, it's right there. I think for a lot of folks. Yeah. I mean, like, first of all, the unwavering decision, you know, or it, 10 years ago, I knew that this is what I was going to do. And there's, and when I was, I knew that I was going to be publishing this book. Actually, it was like 12 years ago now. I was like, okay, no questions. There's no plan B. This is it. And that's really hard, you know, when, when you start needing a plan B because of family and, and, you know, just this city is, is New York is impossibly expensive. So it's like, yeah, this, like this podcast is plan B. I, I need a plan C at this point. <laughs> I'm like down to plan, I'm down to plan E. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, I don't know. There's definitely something to, and I, I love teaching, you know, I think it's really, I, I what I do is, I, I think it's, it's really, it's really cool. And it's, and it is a plan B and something that I had a really hard time with, the existence of a plan B before, you know, I thought that 
I thought in 2004, I thought that it was like, okay, Jonathan Safran Foer, that's, you know, I'm coming for you, buddy. <laughs> it's like, this is how we, this is how we roll in and let's just, let's make it work. And, um, it's, uh, it's not like that. <laughs> and what, what, think, why, but why is it like that for him? I don't know. I think the climate was different back then. And who knows if it is like, if you space things out over time, like he's, he's not like, he didn't make as much money as, as the average douchebag at Goldman. Yeah. And it's, if it takes you 10 years to write a book that, that then makes you, you know, whatever, even best case scenario, you're not making a ton of money per year. Right. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think there are two sides to it, right? Like the, the conviction side, I think that's okay. Like, I don't think that that's asking too much of a person to support you in your conviction. If you're like, okay, this is what I want to do with my life. And if you are honest with that, and if you really, you know, deeply believe that, then I, I, I don't think it's too much to ask for support from a partner to say like, okay, you, you know, I'm proud of you. Like, it's good that that's your, that that's what you want to do. And, so I think that that side of it is separate from the side of just making ends meet. And I think that you can't be crazy and, and not make ends meet because of the dedication that you have to, to one thing. I mean, I think that that is too much to ask of somebody to say that, that, uh, you know, we're sorry, you know, we're not going to be able to, to eat because, because I'm dedicated to my craft and my art, right? you know, but I, but I do think that like emotional support is justified and I think it's necessary. I mean, I think you have to surround yourself with people that, that are supporting what you do. Yeah. I feel like most writers who make it have that, you know, if not all some way, like it just seems like there's always either like a supportive spouse or there's like a benefactor of some sort or university uh, yeah. or some sort it sounds, of, it sounds kind of dirty to me to like hear those things, right? Like the word benefactor to me just sounds it's like, so common. It's so yeah. common. Like James Joyce was bankrolled, you know, like, I mean, all these guys, like you, if you like, it's one of my, re like one of my, uh, reasons for loving literary biography is you learn this stuff. Like, <laughs> like rarely is someone really just out in the sticks, like living hand to mouth, like eating cans of beans, like alone and just crazy right. and writing, you know, it's always, there's always someone who extends a hand and it's a, it's a useful thing to remember. And, um, you know, yeah. Like Theodore Van Gogh, you know, yeah. like that's like, it's, uh, I think that that is, it is really important to, in a better world, I guess there would be some, there'd be a fund. universal, there'd be a yeah, fund. <laughs> yeah, you. some universal fund. And I it would come with like, you know, a room at the Chelsea hotel. Yeah. Are there countries that have, I mean, I feel like other, I feel like there are countries like more socialist democracies that like, like fund the arts. Absolutely. Uh, way like, better look, than what, we do. look what Sweden did with, you know, music. Um, I think they just started giving grants to young. And if you look at pop music or IDM or something and how much of it comes from, from Sweden, it's like, what, this makes no sense. But then when you look at the support that the government gave it, it does make sense. And I think like Ireland, I think you are the first $60,000 you, you make as a writer or tax free. Um, I think that, or at least that used to be the case. And <laughs> that sound is everybody moving to Ireland or <laughs> like, or you, uh, checking, for flight on Travelocity. Yeah. Um, it's, a but, good, it's a good, like, depressive place to write, too. It's all gloomy and beautiful. Yeah. And it's, I wrote, I wrote the, the final 
draft of the, like the right before submission part of this at the back of a, a bar in Dublin. Um, oh, really? With uh, yeah, with my best friend, and it, we were just like sitting pints, and I would I would hand something to him and be like, "Is this any good?" And then he'd say, "No," <laughs> <laughs> and we'd have another couple pints, and you know, um, but. The Irish literary community is really fascinating. There's a, I have a dear friend named Paul Lynch. I get to say precious things like dear friend. I have a dear friend <laughs> when I, when I invoke like the, the Irish, but, um, I have a, a dear friend named Paul Lynch. Who's, uh, I don't know. He's introduced me to a bunch of people in, in the Irish literary world. And it's, it's really, they, they read each other's books. You know, they have enough time to where it's a small enough community to where they've all read, everything that that you know each other's written and and that to me is really cool to have like a deep engagement with someone's work and not just like a gen mingle you know but yeah. to like you know I, to to be able to have this small group of people that you can see the development of their you know their career but also just to talk close reading with people is is the coolest that would be the coolest thing do you, you I don't mean, have that in new york I do some, but not, not until it started this year. You know, I didn't have any, I, I kind of, I don't know. I was too insecure about hanging out with, with writers until I had a book, I guess. So, and this is the first thing I published. I mean, I haven't published another story. Um, I, I hadn't published anything before this. And then it, uh, you know, and then once I had the book, it was, I felt like that was kind of my passport. And how did it, how did it go to say, like, once you finally finished this behemoth, what was the final tally and page count on the manuscript? Um, it's a 400-page book. So, okay. it's, so, so you, take, it's, you take that out, and then it goes uh, how long before it sells? Um, so I guess my yeah, – I, I had a kind of weird process. I sold this directly to HarperCollins without an agent, and then it was – that was in November of 2012. The delivery date was April of 2013. That's when, um, when I was talking about – and then I had this weird thing where – where I had a book contract, you know, and that was going to be coming out in, in 2014. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try to get an agent now. And I got rejected by agents. I got rejected by agents at, with free money on the table, which was really funny. Like what? Harper was, they were like, well, we want to, you know, we're planning on publishing this book. We're gonna how, did, how did you even get it to the point where they were agreeing to publish it without an agent? I had a, I had a connection through, um, through one of my friends with the Harper and, and, uh, I, I actually, like an, I edit, an editor read it. You just submitted it directly to an editor. Yeah. Michael Signorelli, um, Michael Signorelli read it and liked it and passed it up. And, and, uh, and then I went down there and, you know, and they, they liked it enough to want to acquire it. But then I started going around town and, and going to agents and I was like, well, here's, you know, here's free money. Do you want to represent me? And, and, uh, a lot, and everybody was, was like, no, initially until, until the book was. And so that was really that even further kind of kept me from, from getting more into the, the New York literary world. But like, but then, <laughs> um, once, once I had finished, um, cause it was only, it was only a hundred pages when I, when Harper said they wanted to acquire it. And once I had rewritten it and finished it, and it was in galleys. Then I, I was like, all right, well, I'll, I'll try to get an agent again. And so I went back through that process and luckily got, um, 
you know, my top pick. So, um, so now I, who's your I, agent, Jim Rutman. Okay. At Sterling Lord. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, Minch, <laughs> he's pretty, I don't know. He's awesome. Um, but yeah, it was kind of, there were just all these things where writers where, always, writers always love their agents. Yeah, I guess you're, I think, just, you're just so glad to have somebody advocating for you, you know? Yeah, exactly. Somebody, and it, it makes get, a big they, difference. Yeah, they get your work. They like, they, they're like, they like you. You're like, Oh, somebody likes me. It's like, yeah. uh, I have like, and you feel you feel confident enough to start hanging out at all the literary parties now. Right. You're like you're like okay now I can yeah. engage. Right. But I'm, like, I'm represented by Jim Rutman. <laughs> you are? No, no, no. I was just saying that. I was I was imagining you saying that at literary parties. You know, <laughs> you, you have something to say about like your representation or something. It makes it seem yeah. more like more legitimate somehow. I think it's just like all right. Well, I'm nah, <laughs> whatever. This is this, I'm. This is embarrassing. <laughs> um, but. I think it would be nice if, if, uh, and I try to, you know, when I meet people, I try to like trade books and, and I read, you know, I read a lot. And I I think if I had one goal, it would be that like where the New York literary community or like the broader literary community, just like everybody read each other's books. That would be, that would be cool. But there are just too many, you know, there are too many fucking books. Yeah. It's impossible to keep up with. It's hard. It's yeah, it's it's hard. You know, there are just all sorts of different pulls, but I don't know. Well, I I congratulate you, man. You got through the hoops. You mean you stuck it out for a decade for this book and got it into print uh, and did it with an agent, no less. Did it on your own, you know, through a little uh, what like what pluck and luck. Yeah, uh, by hook or by crook. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So congrats on that, and uh, it's been fun talking with you and. Uh, I, I mean, I got to ask, are you working on anything new as a top secret? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I'm working on a new novel. It's called To Test the Meaning of Certain Dreams. It's uh, it's about the Soviet space program. And, and it'll be done in like, what, 2025? Like, when are we done with this? Yeah, maybe 2050. <laughs> we'll see. Um, All right. <laughs> hoping for a short. What about you? How, what's your what's your uh, Working on part? it. Working on it right now. Like, Well, not right now, but like I'm working on it as we speak. When I'm, <laughs> You're when like, I'm, yeah, this whole conversation, I've just been typing. Yeah, I, I'm, like, yeah, I'm uh-huh, multitasking. Uh-huh. I got, I got, <laughs> got 2,500 words during this call. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> My, I admire you. My brother calls it semi-tasking, and I love that. That's that's more of what it is for me. I can't do those two things. But what's the what's the title? Uh, I don't. It doesn't really have one. I mean, I, I've been calling it "How to Fail," but that's like a joke title that I like. You know. I, yeah, I, I think it's "How to Fail Better." Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Over and over and over again. I got to figure out the title. I got a lot to figure out, but I'm working on something. So. Um, fun talking with you. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of the show. Well, and I appreciate you taking some time out of your tutoring to uh, get on the phone. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for everything, Brad. I appreciate it. All right, guys. That's Will Chancellor. Go get his novel, A Brave Man, Seven Stories Tall, out there now from Harper in hardcover, in ebook editions. And uh, due out in paperback in July 2015. You can find Will on Twitter. His handle over there is at Will Chancellor. At will Chancellor. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the other people app. This uh this podcast has its own app. The app is free. Get the app. The app is free. Get it for your iPhone, get it for your Android phone, get it for your device. And uh then you will be in possession of the very best way to listen to this podcast. The uh, most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you, free. 
And uh, then if you want to stream the deeper archives, all 350 episodes, somewhere in there, you can sign up for premium. It's very cheap. It's a great way to support the show. I think you should do that. I also think you should email me if you want. The address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Tell me what you think. Tell me a story. So, it's been a, uh, not a hellish day, a hectic slash annoying day. It's sort of annoying to speak accurately. You wind up adding slashes and hyphens to things. I feel, uh, fatigued, but, uh, overall, fairly positive. My dog Walter ran away today. That happened. Some neighbors brought him home. I feel like things have gotten so crazy in our household. Like, we're so busy and, uh, our headspace is so uh, consumed with other things that, like, the dog can just run away now. That used to never happen. Now he just disappears for a couple hours. (laughs) In the city of Los Angeles. We gotta get our shit together. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, oh man gotta get my shit together my shit is not together my shit is diffuse I need to concentrate it bring it back together unify gotta unify it you know what I'm talking about right I feel like this is the most sedate I've ever talked into this microphone am I having a soothing effect am I calming you down I feel like I'm talking about anxiety-inducing things in a very soothing way. (laughs) This is how people on NPR talk about anxiety. I feel so anxious. I'm Steve Inskeep, and I feel anxious. This music is sort of anxiety-inducing, too. Not even sort of, it really is anxiety-inducing. But then it it sort of gets comical at the end. (laughs) 